Well, good morning. How's everybody doing after Thanksgiving this week? Are you awake from the turkey? All right. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Parker. I'm actually the group's pastor here, which also means I'm not the usual preacher. You know, when it's a Sunday after a big holiday and, and Adam and some of the other guys were out of town, you sort of have to call up from the minors, so to speak, right? So, well, I've heard a great way to start a sermon is with an illustration, whether it's from your own life or from culture, you know, current events. But today I'm going to be talking about um, division and discontent. And as much as I tried to rack my brain, I couldn't come up with a good example. Okay, I'm saying that a little bit in jest. We live in a society full of discontent and division right now, don't we? I mean, we've just come out of, or we're still sort of in the COVID pandemic where everybody had really strong and often divisive opinions, right? And we're only a month out from the last election cycle, which division and discontent comes out loud and proud then, right? And that's seemingly only grown, at least over my voting lifetime. And really, this overall societal discontent and division has seemed to grow more and more. And I think a lot of people would point to the advent of so many social media platforms, ironically meant to connect us, but they've done much more to divide us. And you know, one of the things that's really grieved my heart over the last few years is that the church has had a wonderful opportunity in front of us to be set apart from the world, to look totally different. But unfortunately, what I've seen is that we've fallen into a lot of the same things. You know, the world's division over petty things like political preference or masks or whatever it may be has really snuck into the church and we've not looked all that much different. And so I'm excited about this section of Acts that we're gonna read here this morning because what I think we're going to see here is that a united church can have a great kingdom impact. So let's pray and then we'll dive into God's word. Well, Father God, I thank you for this time that we can set aside each week to come and gather in your house with your people, your body, to worship you and to hear from your word. And I pray that your truth would ring out this morning, that you would give me the words to say, that you would give us all ears to hear, and that you would give us a conviction to then live out what you've called us to. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Acts chapter six this morning, if you'd like to turn there. I'm gonna start off by reading the entire text. So Acts chapter six, verses one through seven. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time in teaching the word, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And everyone liked this idea. They chose the following, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. And I might add, great name. Uh, speaking of names, don't you love when you come to a section like this, if you're in a Bible study or whatever, and it's your turn to read out loud and you have no idea how to pronounce them? Well, let me set your mind at ease. I have no idea if I said any of those names right. Just say it boldly and everybody will believe that you know what you're talking about. Um, but the, these seven men were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So we're seeing a, a problem begin to develop here in the early church. Now, the first thing that we read is actually a really great thing, right? The, the number of believers is rapidly multiplying. 
We saw all the way back in Acts chapter two after Peter preached his first gospel sermon that 3,000 people believed and were baptized that day, right? So boom, a, a mega church right out of the gate. And then we read later in Acts 4.4, 4, it says that the number of men who believe now totaled about 5,000. And that's just the men. So you're likely looking at a church here of 10 or 15,000 or more within just a couple of years of Pentecost. And you know, as a church grows, particularly this big, this quickly, well, problems are inevitably gonna start popping up. And then that leads to those rumblings of discontent, as the NLT puts it. You know, the Greek word here carries the idea of a murmuring or a more you know, subtle and consistent complaining. And I'd just like to make a little sidebar point here. You know, there's a lot of complaining about the church today, both from within and from the world outside. And of course, some of it, unfortunately, is justified. But I think we can often idealize this early church, and I wanna caution us against that a bit. Or, or as Adam has taught us from the very beginning of the series, you know, there's a difference between description and prescription. Of course, there's a lot of great things that we can take from this first group of disciples, these, um, this first church. But let's also remember that this church was made up, like we are, of humans, of people, of sinners just like you and me. And so there are problems in this early church too. But, you know, we too often hear of people leaving a church today because of something they didn't like, you know, some problem comes up or some conflict that they had and they abandon the church. And, you know, that really saddens my heart and I believe it saddens God as well. You know, people are messy. And so therefore church is often messy. But I think how we work through that messy is what speaks the loudest. You know, problems shouldn't surprise us and problems shouldn't call it, cause us to abandon the church Problems can be and should be viewed as an opportunity for us to actually live out our faith like we're going to see this first church. Now, maybe that's a little idealized, but um, even this first church has issues to deal with. So early on, most of the problems or the threats to the church were coming from the outside. The religious establishment and the Roman government are persecuting the church. And that's a common thing that we see throughout the book of Acts. In fact, these seven verses are just a short section between two accounts of persecution and suffering. And we know that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world still face similar things today. But here we see the problems are coming from the inside. Now we've already seen uh, sin enter into the church when just a few weeks ago we studied Ananias and Sapphira and how they had lied to the apostles. Or as the apostles had said, you lied to the Holy Spirit of God and how God quickly dealt with them. But now we're seeing another problem start to creep into the church. And I think it's really important for us to observe how this first church handles this issue so that we can glean some wisdom on how to handle it as well. Because it's the all too common problem that I've already mentioned of division, or at least the potential for division. So we see it starting here all the way back in the first church and we know it's made it clear up to our 21st century churches. So let's take a look at the text again. Acts six, verse one. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So what's going on here? Well, let's actually tackle this in reverse order. So this daily distribution of food comes from something we've already seen in Acts 2 and Acts 4. At the end of Acts 2, it says that all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything that they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those who had need. And then in Acts 4, it says, all the believers were united, and that's a key word, in heart and in mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. Now, this actually wasn't something totally new, particularly looking after widows. This was actually tradition in Jewish society. 
As early as Deuteronomy 14, when God is instructing the people on what to do with the tithes, he says this, give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as to the foreigners living among you, to the orphans and to the widows in your town so that they can eat and be satisfied. And then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. And this was really important because in that day, in that culture, to be a widow was to be in a precarious position. You know, when the husband died, well, there went the family income. And so unless there were children, particularly a son old enough to work, well, these widows were in serious need. And so now the church is carrying on this tradition of caring for widows. And we see this throughout scripture. It's mentioned again in James and in detail in 1 Timothy 5. Well, what about these two groups? You know, some of your Bibles may call them Hellenists or Grecian Jews or Hebrews and Hebraic Jews. And so the NLT is really helpful here in breaking this down to simply Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking Jews who were believers. So this isn't necessarily an issue of racism here. It's they're all Jews, but it is an issue of significant cultural divisions causing them to change how they're treating one another. At this point, point, the church is made up primarily of Jews. Jesus had instructed his followers in Acts 1 to start their witnessing in Jerusalem and around Judea, much like he had started his ministry preaching to his own people. And then there are also converts to the Jewish faith like Nicholas. And in the broader Jewish culture, the Hebrew speakers would have seen themselves as the true Jews. Those who still spoke, spoke Hebrew and Aramaic who had remained in Israel closer to Jerusalem and thus closer to the temple, and who had held on tightly to the traditions and the cultures that had been passed down. Whereas the Greek-speaking Jews were those who had been dispersed beyond Israel, generally to countries where Greek was the common language, which was most of their known world at the time. And so that's what they spoke. And they also adopted and even embraced many of the Greek customs and culture. And so the Hebrews would have seen these Greek Jews as compromisers. This is sort of like the the traditionalists and fundamentalists versus modernists or progressives, which are labels we see tossed around still today. Well, when these two groups came to Jerusalem for um, festivals like Passover and Pentecost, well, you could tell the difference between these two groups of people. And now there's a danger of this cultural difference and the prejudices along with it creeping into the church. Now, there's some debate amongst biblical scholars here as to whether or not this neglect in the daily distribution of food was intentional or not. And the NLT rendering here of uh, discriminated against is probably a little harsh. Most other translations say overlooked or neglected. I mean, think about what a tall task this was for the 12 apostles to meet all the spiritual and physical needs of such a large church that sprang up in such a short amount of time. But regardless, it is happening. The Greek-speaking widows specifically were being overlooked. And now this was a place where I was tempted to be um, idealized the early church because I wanted to give them credit for bringing this issue to the apostles' attention. And now not every issue needs to be brought to leadership's attention, but that's much more mature than what often happens of just gossiping and telling everybody, you know, complaining to anybody who will listen and jumping ship on the church. But it's unclear here if they brought this issue to the apostles' attention or if the rumblings of discontent just grew so loud that, well, everybody knows now, Right? And now I've said the problems in the church that they faced were starting from the outside and now they've come inside, but we need to acknowledge something here. We have an enemy, Satan, who does not want Jesus' church to succeed. And so these issues are really strategies of the devil. And here he's trying that age-old strategy of divide and conquer. And so how does this first church respond? Well, their solution is what I'm going to call disciple-making. And I'll get to what I call, why I call that in just a minute. But let's look at the text again. So Acts 6, verses 2 through 4. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers, 
And they said, we apostles should spend our time in teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So the 12 or the apostles who are the leaders of this church at this time, take this issue seriously. They call a church-wide meeting. But if we're honest, isn't there something a little bit weird about their response? They don't want to run a food program or some versions say they don't want to wait on tables. Well, what's that all about? Are they too good for this kind of service? Well, I want us to see that's not it at all. We need to recognize something here as well. Dealing with this issue, of course, was important. You know, healing potential division in the church was key and making sure the widows were cared for was needed. But the apostles didn't let this take them off track from the ultimate mission of the church. The mission was clear and the apostles as the leaders of the church weren't going to be distracted by other problems. Or, Or let me say this another way. They weren't going to let a good thing take the place of the ultimate thing. If they go about solving this food distribution problem by cutting back on sharing God's word and prayer, well, that ultimately leads to them not being the church. And they had received their mission directly from Jesus. And we saw it in Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem and throughout Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And also in what we call the great commission from the end of, of Matthew, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. That is the mission of the church then and now, to witness about Jesus, to spread the gospel, to preach and teach his word, and go and make disciples. Now, there are many other things that we're called to do as followers of Jesus, like caring for those in need, like widows. And those are good things. But ironically, that's often where we see divisions start to infiltrate the church. You know, someone becomes passionate about some good cause and comes to church leadership saying, we should do something about this, or or far too often, you should do something about this. But if that particular thing doesn't become the priority, or the church doesn't add a certain program, or a pastor doesn't personally take on that ministry, well, then here comes the murmuring the discontent and and the division, or or even the slander of the church and its leadership, leaving the church to find another one that's more true and encouraging others to come along. And then, of course, the the silver bullet of our age, a critical tweet or a Facebook or Instagram post, right? Now, now I'm saying that a bit in jest, but we've all seen that, haven't we? Particularly in the last few years, you know, if the church doesn't get on board with uh, social justice, for instance, as defined by the world, well, then we're not a true church or we're not really Christians, And you know, there are hundreds of other causes like that, and please hear me, good and worthy things. But we need to be aware of how our expectations might actually be infringing on the ultimate mission of the church. And so this is where I think that's a great place for us to take some prescription from the early church. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. After all, the only thing that solves any of these other issues is Jesus, welcoming lost people into the kingdom of God where hearts and lives are truly changed. And so that is what the apostles are saying when they say they shouldn't be running a food program. They don't mean that's not something that a worthy cause the church shouldn't take on. They're just prioritizing what they are called to do as leaders. You know, these 12 had a special sacred role teaching the church and being sent by Jesus to witness to the world about him and spread the gospel. And so that's why they said it was best for them to spend their time in prayer and teaching the word. After all, Jesus had told them back in Matthew 9, he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. 
And by the way, it was really clear to them that they were to be included in those workers going out into the harvest. And then we read in Romans uh, chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. And for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how will they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will some, anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Now, the word apostle means one who is sent. So the 12 aren't being neglectful or dismissive. They're staying true to their call. And you know, the leaders of our church here have that same call because the mission of Jesus' church has never changed. Amen? Okay, but what about this issue at hand? You know, how are the apostles going to care for these widows and then keep this potential division from seriously damaging the church? Well, they don't take the problem on themselves and just add more to their plates, but they do take on the problem. They take their disciple-making call seriously. They raise up other disciples to take on this responsibility, and they show great unity in doing so. And by the way, this is something we're also trying to do as a church as well. You know, one of our distinctive values is leadership is learned. We want to equip everyone in our church to take on responsibilities so that the ultimate mission of God's church can continue to be the main thing. And now not everyone is called into leadership, but we are all called to do something as followers of Christ. Well, let's, let's look at what these seven were called to do. Verses five and six it says, everyone liked this idea and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So again, they call together the church. Now, this unlikely means all 10 or 15,000 people, but it does say they called a meeting of all the believers. And you know, this was a pretty natural response because for that culture, they were much more concerned about the greater community life than we are here today in such an individualistic society. You know, one particular group feels overlooked, but this is something that the entire church needed to come together to help resolve. And the apostles asked the church, the people, to recommend the men who are gonna be called into this ministry. And you know, we should take note that all seven of these men who are appointed, they all have Greek names, which was likely mostly practical. Of course, they would have spoken the same language as the specific widows who were being overlooked, and of course, that would be helpful. But I don't believe it's entirely inconsequential that these 12 Hebrew apostles gladly approve the appointment of these seven Greek disciples into leadership. They're essentially squashing any cultural differences, and they're showing the church how different people from different backgrounds and with different callings should work together in the church. Now, I use this term disciple-making intentionally because the word discipleship in our American or our Western culture, it really has come to mean something purely academic. You know, it's been reduced to mostly gathering more information. Whereas disciple-making is much more than just information. It's about transformation. And you know, in the, in the Bible, the word disciple carries with it the idea of being an apprentice. So not just learning more information, but learning how to do something. And so for Jesus' followers, like us, it means learning how to do what he did to live as he lived, and to love and serve others as he did. Well, I love this verse that when Jesus is teaching his disciples about loving others, including their enemies, and not judging unjustly, he says in Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will become like his teacher. And so we, we need to rewrite what we mean when we say disciples and view ourselves as apprentices of Jesus who are working to be fully trained to be like our teacher. And so that is what I mean when I say disciple-making. We're being trained as, a, 
as disciples, as apprentices of Jesus. And then we're joining him in his mission, in the church and in the world, to go and make more disciples and to train up more apprentices. And you know, part of the beauty of the church, the body of Christ, is that we are made up differently. No two disciples look or think or act the same. We all have different giftings, different spiritual gifts and interests, different passions, different callings. You know, Paul talks about this a lot. In 1 Corinthians 12, he writes this. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but of many. And then verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body of Christ, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And then in Ephesians 4, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to his church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we come to such a unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. And then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way to be more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes his whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Well, notice how key unity was. In that, or as Corinthians said, that there should be no division in the body. You know, when the church are, is made up of disciples who are focused on doing their part, using their specific gifts in the way that God has called them to do that, and trusting everyone else to do the same, well, there's great unity in that. It's when we start worrying about what everyone else is doing that division starts to creep in. And notice also that the leaders of the church weren't given to do all the work themselves, but to equip God's people to do his work. If the pastors and elders and other churches here at First Free are doing everything ourselves rather than disciple-making, helping all of you become you know, fully trained apprentices to Christ, well, we're actually falling short of our calling and failing you. And then finally, notice that from a biblical perspective, there's no such thing as sitting on the sidelines. You know, one of the critiques of the American church in particular that I would have to say is fair is that we've become purely a, a consumer Christianity. You know that old saying of 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people? I found that to be nowhere more true than in the church, unfortunately. But we're called to each part do your own special work. So what about you? First, let me say thank you to all of those who are faithful volunteers here each and every week at First Free. You know, we could not do all that we do without you. But if that's not you, let me encourage you and, and challenge you maybe a little bit to, to find what Christ is calling you to do. What does God want you to do in his body? Because we can't be the full body of Christ when we're literally missing parts. You know, we can't be the full body of Christ to, that we're called to be without you. Well, let's look back at the text now and examine the qualifications for these seven who are being recommended to this role. You know, some would say that this is where the office or the role of deacon was first established. So this, this is another area that's a little bit debated. You know, the word deacon simply means servant, and that's what these men were being called into. And the verb tense of that word, Greek word here is used when the apostles talk about the food program or, or serving tables. These seven, however, aren't specifically called deacons, and we actually don't see that title until 1 Timothy 3. 
But regardless whether they're officially deacons or not, these men are being called into servant leadership roles within the church. And the qualifications for that, notice that it's much more about their character than their aptitude. You know, they're to be well-respected, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You know, it's almost like they had paid attention to 1 Samuel 16. If you remember that story, you know, King Saul has failed, and so God has called Samuel to go and anoint the new king that he doesn't yet know is David. And he goes to Jesse, David's father's house, and he sees his older brothers, you know, these tall, strapping young men, and thinks, oh, these are the guys. But what does the Lord say to him? He says, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're often still caught up in what people look like on the outside, aren't we? How successful they appear in the outside world, or, um, whereas rather than their character or what's in their heart. And really the greatest qualification for ministry is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which then leads to wisdom and being well-respected. And we're so thankful for the men and women who serve faithfully in, the, in this role of deacon and in other roles here at First Free. And I loved how one commentary that I read noted that while this is very practical service they're being called to, all service within the church is spiritual service. These men are called to pretty ordinary tasks, you know, waiting on tables. But none of them saw themselves as above this kind of thing. And isn't that so true of people who typically serve in more behind-the-scenes kind of roles? You'll also notice that it doesn't mention that these men needed to have the specific spiritual gift of administration, and I just note that because while I do think it's important for all of us to try to identify our specific spiritual gifts, and you know, we do that in the rooted experience, for instance, and then put those to use in the church, now that doesn't mean we're never called to do other things. Maybe even something outside of your preference or outside of your comfort zone. I mean, just ask me here this morning. I'm way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> but we see these men called to ordinary tasks, but as we look at this list, we'll see that many of them go well beyond that. We actually know little to nothing about most of these men. You know, several are only mentioned here. But Stephen, who gets a special note about being a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, we'll learn more about him in the new year after our Christmas series. He was a great leader, a powerful speaker, and the first martyr, you know, giving up his life for the gospel. Talk about a fully trained disciple who looks like his teacher. And then there's Philip, and by the way, not the apostle who also plays a prominent role throughout Acts. And we'll read more about his story in chapter eight in January. He, he would come to be called the evangelist and he raises up his daughters with that same bent. Now the rest we really don't know much about, but clearly they're well-respected to be nominated for these roles in the church. And again, the, the 12 are pleased with their selection and they pray for them as they lay their hands on them. And this is a really interesting practice. This is the first time we see this in the New Testament, this laying on of hands is specifically a way of affirming these men or the apostles conferring leadership onto them. And later, uh, deacons and, and um, elders would be ordained in this same way. You can actually trace this practice all the way back to when Moses um, commissions Joshua to be his, success for, his successor in Numbers 27. Well, let's look at what happens after this appointment. What is the result? Well, it's kingdom growth. Verse seven, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many Jewish priests were converted too. While it's not specifically stated here, we can assume that the widows have now been cared for and this division that was entering the church has been squashed, right? Hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? But also notice the ultimate mission of the church has been accomplished. God's message continues to spread. The number of believers continues to greatly increase. God's kingdom is growing, 
You see, a united church has a great kingdom impact. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty practical. You know, I love sitting in on a good sermon, a good Bible study, a good small group, but I often leave with like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Or the idea of now what? And so I do think this is an area that we could take some prescription from this section of Acts. I mean, think about it. Literally everyone responds in the right way. You know, there's this problem that starts to creep into the church with potential division following. And the people that are being impacted, the Greek-speaking believers and widows, yes, they complain, but they don't stop at complaining. They don't jump ship on the church. They lean in and they bring this issue to leadership. At least I, I hope that's what they did. They brought that to leadership. But regardless, they accept the solution. And not only do they accept the solution, they take an active part in it. And the Hebrew-speaking believers don't just fall back on cultural prejudices and dismiss the issue or, or try to defend themselves. They listen and they act. And the apostles take the issue seriously and they suggest a solution. But they also keep the main thing the main thing. They keep the responsibility of the ultimate mission on themselves and they raise up other disciples who can take on this responsibility within the church. And the seven step up. They take on responsibility within the church, each one doing his part. And then what do we see ultimately? We see a great witness. You know, when the church behaves how we're supposed to, people take notice. You know, they're desperately wanting this type of community. True Christian community, a united body of Christ, is like an oasis in a, in a desert of a divided world. It even reaches people you'd never imagine would be interested, like these Jewish priests. You know, for them to convert, think about it, and it kind of feels like a random side note here, doesn't it? They're, they're turning their back on a lot. They're turning their back on their culture, on their vocation, on their job, their ministry. You know, the religious leaders who have been persecuting the church so far would be none too happy that some from their own ranks, you know, priests are now following Jesus. So they've clearly noticed something significant here. And friends, this is pretty amazing, and we need not just gloss over it. You know, it started all the way back in Acts chapter 2, where it's noted that the believers were united. And then it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then this unity is noted again in Acts chapter 4, which leads to more and more people believed in Acts chapter 5. And then at the beginning and the end of this section of 6, it says, the believers rapidly multiplied and the number of believers greatly increased. And this is a theme we'll continue to see throughout the book of Acts, a united church having a significant impact. And so what about us? What about us here at the body of Christ at First Free Church? How do we live into this legacy? Well, first, we need to recognize that it truly isn't us, nor was it these first believers that are causing this growth. It says, the Lord added to their number daily, right? And Jesus had said back in Matthew 6, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And this first church is proof, isn't it? So far, Satan's attacks aren't working. Persecution has only led to the church growing, and now they're handling internal conflict well, so he wasn't able to divide and conquer. And so throughout Acts, we see that this is the work of Jesus. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's fulfilling his promise to be with us always, even to the very end of the age. But we also see disciples who are obedient to their call. So we do need to follow the Lord and do what he's calling us to do. And one of the things I love about our church is our focus on being undivided. In fact, there's an entire sermon series called the Undivided Series that teaches on that. I recently sat in on our membership class where part of the homework is to watch that series and come prepared to discuss it. We want everyone who calls First Free Church home to have that undivided mindset, you know, absolutely united in our dogma, united in our doctrine, and yet flexible and charitable in our convictions and preferences, never letting those secondary issues divide us. Because we know that through unity, we, are a, we have a great witness. 
Whereas the devil would like to divide us and diminish that witness. But remember that the Bible tells us we are not unaware of his schemes. So friends, I know we're in a culture and a time when sometimes it feels like we are hopelessly divided. But don't be discouraged and definitely don't join in. You know, we know where to find the ultimate source of hope and unity. And we have a great opportunity right in front of us to be a beacon of light in this dark world. When the world sees the church living as we're called to, they'll want that. You know, they're dying to experience this unity of believers that Jesus has called us to. In, in John 17, which is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays this. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. And friends, that's you and I, that's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. A united church has a great kingdom impact. And so how do we live this out? Back to the practicality. How do we live united, undivided, and follow this example here in Acts? Well, if you know of a problem, don't simply complain. And definitely don't sow discord or gossip, and please don't leave the church. Lean in, and maybe recognize where this issue sits in those buckets of belief. Is it, is it merely a conviction or a preference issue that you can move beyond? Now, if it is something that needs to be brought to the leadership's attention, please do, in the right way. And also don't just stop it, you should do something, because maybe the Spirit's laying this on your heart, because you should do something. You know, when we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts that we're commanded to use in the body of Christ. So let's do it. Let's all step up and help this church be the best church it can be by doing our part. And by the way, you don't even have to wait until there's a problem. Right? We have plenty of volunteer needs out there today. You know, our staff has been going through the last couple of weeks some 2023 planning. And I can tell you to accomplish these goals that we have, we need more and consistent volunteers. So I just want to encourage you to go to efree.org serve to see what's out there and sign up. In fact, I'm doing better on my time this service than I was last time. So why don't you all take out your phones? No, seriously, I know you all have them, right? Take out your phone right now because if you're anything like me, every week we tell you to go to efree.org something and then you forget by the time you're in the parking lot, right? So just go on your phone, pull up the browser, go to efree.org serve. This is actually what it's going to look like. So you can see all these different ministries, all the different opportunities. If you click within one of those ministries, you'll see you know, different roles, different job descriptions, what kind of time commitment there is. There's a form to fill out, maybe a contact person there so that you sign up. And I just wanna encourage you to do that so that we can, we can head into 2023 ready for all that God wants us to accomplish as the body of Christ here. And if you're already serving or leading in our church, again, thank you. I just wanna encourage you, keep going. Do not grow weary in doing good. And can I also plead with you to become a disciple maker? Invite someone to come alongside you, come and serve with you. Encourage and intentionally raise up others. You know, give away responsibilities so that we can have more disciples who are becoming fully trained apprentices to Jesus. Help us ensure that each part is doing its work. And then for everyone, please pray for your church leadership and be an encourager. You know, serving and leading in the church is often difficult. And if you're here this morning, you're just kind of checking things out. I want to just let you know, you're not going to find a perfect church here, but you're not going to find a perfect church anywhere. Um, what I hope you will find here, though, is a church doing our best to love God, to make much of Jesus, to serve and love others, our neighbors as ourselves. And while we're not a perfect church, we do serve a perfect Savior that we would love to tell you more about. And he wants to see his church united 
in who we are, our identity. We are children of God. We are disciples. We are apprentices to Jesus. And also united in our purpose. We're using different individual gifts together as one body of Christ with the same goal of glorifying God and pointing others to Jesus. And that will have a great kingdom impact. Well, friends, let's be that church. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for today and that we can gather together again, particularly this Sunday after Thanksgiving when we've spent so much time thanking you for what you have given us. Help us to remember that well beyond when a holiday tells us to. And Lord, I thank you for your church, the body of Christ, and what you've called us to do. And I just pray, Lord, that each of us would feel convicted here this morning of what you want us to do moving forward. Maybe it's to not buy into all this division that the world is having around us and to be a unifier here in our church. Maybe it's to continue to be a leader and, a, and someone who's serving in the church, but also to be a disciple maker and invite some other people along so we can have more people as fully committed, fully trained apprentices to Jesus. Or maybe it's to step out in faith and serve for the first time. Maybe there's someone here who's been sitting on the sideline and they just need to, to step out and step into your body of Christ so that we can be the full body, not missing any parts. And so, Lord, I just thank you for this example from the book of Acts of how we, we can deal with issues that may pop up, how we can be a unified church and how we can raise up people to, to contribute to the body of Christ. And Lord, we just thank you for how much you've given us, that you give us gifts, that you use us in your mission. I pray that you would help us to be serious about that the rest of this year and into the new year, to be on mission with Jesus and to see what you do to build your kingdom through us. All right, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.